Good morning again. My name is Roger Hillbig, and I'm going to be reading scripture this morning from Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. If you have your pew Bible, that will be on page 605, and I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me. In his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth and with it said, Now this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Who shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. This is the word of, the, of God. Thanks be to God. Let us bow in prayer. Lord, this passage reminds each of us just how glorious you are and yet how imperfect and sinful we are, just as the prophet Isaiah was. Yet we rejoice in the saving power of Jesus Christ, who has atoned for our sin on the cross. Today you have sent your servant, Mike Weeks, to us. You've put a message on his heart that we're to hear this morning. We thank you for his obedience to answer the call, and I pray that his nerves be calm, that he is to speak clearly the message that your Holy Spirit has given him. I also pray that each of us who hears the message to be moved to action and to answer yes, send me wherever you are calling me to go. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. This is my fifth sermon in three years, and that might be a bit frequent for my writing speed. So, um, It's getting easier, though, which is a scary thought, because I like the back. 
So um, this, this lesson is one that I've written a lot on because it's one that I've been learning for the past year. And uh, it starts with a question. Why do so many testimonies involve rock bottom? Why is it such a common theme that you're at the end of your rope and you're out of options and that's when you turn to God and cry out and he comes and saves you? I think the very short answer is God gives us what we ask for. When you're asking for independence, when you're asking for your own way and your own power, he gives it. He leaves you alone as you ask, and that's not a good place to be. And then when you realize that and see the mess that you've made and you ask for his help, he grants it. But an answer for such a weighty question. So what more is there to learn from this? When life is falling apart, when you're at the end of your rope and out of resources, and what is it about that situation that leads to salvation? Well, to better understand our question, let's borrow a technique from mathematicians. We can better define the scope of our question by looking at the inverse and finding its boundaries. So what is the inverse, what is the opposite of a desperate rock-bottom salvation. And someone who is rich and comfortable and not going to heaven. And we can find one of those in Matthew 19. If you don't have a Bible, you should be able to find one under a chair in front of you. Uh, go ahead and take it as a gift. Everyone should have free access to God's Word. If you do have a Bible but you forgot to bring it, go ahead and borrow the one under the chair in front of you. Um, but Leave it behind when you go so that the next person without can benefit. But in Matthew 19, we find a rich young ruler, as he is labeled, coming to Jesus. He's confident in his obedience of the law and how he's been living his life, but he's still wondering, do I make it? Am I good enough to get into heaven? And Jesus answers, in, starting in verse 21, if you want to be perfect... Jesus said to him, go sell your belongings and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard that, he went away grieving because he had many possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that verse 21 is not a sweeping declaration of earthly possessions being wicked. It is pointing out this rich young man's heart issue. He had much, and he loved his possessions more than he loved God. Related to that, the persona of a person who... Uh, typical to one who has abundance, is a persona that struggles to see God because of the abundance piled around them. And we can see that truth in Proverbs 18, verse 11. The wealth of the rich is his fortified city. In his imagination, it is like a high wall. A rich man feels safe and secure. And who looks for a savior when you're already safe? Sometimes it takes until we hit rock bottom, out of our own options, before we turn to God and accept one of His. 
Before you ask to be saved, you must realize that you need saving. And that is why evangelical tools like the Master's Way and the Roman Road, that's why they start with proving the need for a Savior. So that led me to think, when we are broken and we finally turn for help, what is it that breaks? Because I'm still me on the other side of that event. My ego, in the psychological use of the word, still exists. So when life is piled on top of you and you're being pressed to the breaking point, what breaks? Well, it's, it's our pride and self-reliance, isn't it? It's that dependence on self and that feeling of being better than others. It's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven because a rich man still has his pride and self-reliance. You can't get into heaven relying on your own ability. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast, Ephesians 2.9. If you relied on yourself and achieved it, you would boast about that accomplishment, which would deprive God of his due glory. So that's the broad strokes to my starting question. Now we've looked at the question, and we found an opposite example that reveals more of the motivation. But I could end there and let us all contemplate these things. But as I chewed on it, I was shown more connected to it. And this is where the lesson really started hitting home for me. The passage read to us this morning from Isaiah 6 is helpful because it is an example of brokenness without the rock-bottom setup. And this will help us look more purely at the mechanics of what is going on here. First, a fun little piece of Bible trivia. This passage is the only mention of seraphim in the whole Bible, which implies that this is all that they do is constantly surrounding the throne giving praise to God. So, all right, let's look at the sequence of actions in Isaiah 6. I saw God. Angels were proclaiming his praise constantly as an ongoing thing. I said, woe is me. There's no act of judgment. There's no pronouncement or any back and forth. It's, I saw, I broke. Brokenness is a natural reaction to understanding your spiritual situation. Seeing God forces irrefutable knowing of your debts and deficits. And then that true understanding of your debt and the price paid makes brokenness. How much should God pay for me? I don't deserve it. I can't repay it. I'll never be able to make up that value that he's invested why would he even bother? Until it moves beyond a sterile academic knowledge and becomes understanding, you do not feel the weight of it. And some of us, many of us, maybe most, needed our physical life to mirror that state of impotence, of lacking, of defeat, before we could comprehend our spiritual state. But brokenness is only a step in the process, and it's not where everything ends. This is, there's still a me after it, but we're not ready for after yet. In this passage, I found three things that break. 
and if you're looking for the three points of the sermon, here they are. I am a man of unclean lips. I know my failings. My pride breaks. Among a people of unclean lips, my cultural identity, my mask breaks. And here I am, send me. Your plan's not mine. My plan breaks. So let's start with pride. There is much to be said about pride. As many of you heard, pride cometh before the fall. Or uh, in newer vernacular, Proverbs 11, verse 2. When arrogance comes, disgrace follows, but with humility comes wisdom. Another common one is, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It is a saying quoted, paralleled, used multiple times in... I have a few references, Psalm 138, verse 6, Proverbs 3, verse 34, Proverbs 29, verse 23, Matthew 23, verse 12, Luke 1, verse 52, James 4, verse 6, 1 Peter 5, verse 5, and many others. I'm convinced that it was a popular idiom. And an example of parallel thought to that would be the Matthew 23 passage, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So again, pride to disgrace and humility to grace. Now, fantasy and mythology get hung up on the idea of the seven deadly sins a lot, uh, of which pride is first because he won't let anyone else stand in front of him. But they are deadly because they shape whole lifestyles around themselves. Pride has to be stoked and fed it will demand things be done for it or avoided because they are hazardous to it. Pride is about how good you yourself are. And when you more than know your sin, but acknowledge and feel its crushing weight, well, then pride no longer has a leg to stand on. When you hit rock bottom, you are forced to admit that you are not good enough. You cannot escape with your own power because it is inadequate. This is also your spiritual state. You could never do enough to reach the perfection required to enter heaven. And this is where a rich man struggles. They will say, heaven sounds like a good idea. I'll go ahead and I'll, I'll say the words and I'll get that insurance policy. And, and then they go on living their life with nothing changed because it's just words to them. They do not have the insecurity or the vulnerability that accomplishes the understanding of the situation. This truth is a hard one. As it says in Revelation 10.10, 10, Then I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I ate it, my stomach became bitter. The truth of God is sweet in the mouth, but bitter in the stomach. This is a difficult truth to internalize, and it's not fun. But brokenness is a critical step in the salvation process. To quote an old dead guy, till sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet. So shed your pride, reject your self-reliance. Do not try to hold any of your achievements next to the redemptive work of Christ. Christ did it all, and all of it was something that you never could do. 
right now you're probably thinking I would use that other passage in Isaiah where it says our righteous acts are as filthy rags. But no, I want to use the Psalms. Psalm 147, verses 10 and 11, speaking of God. He is not impressed by the strength of a horse. He does not value the power of a warrior. The Lord values those who fear him, those who put their hope in his faithful love. Another translation says, God takes no pleasure in the might of men. If he takes no pleasure, why should I? Why should I praise, boast about, or admire human accomplishment? Now that is a bit harsh of wording, but essentially what I'm saying is man has no achievement equal to the redemptive work of Christ. So when you really finally know God, you know how far out of your reach the whole thing is. Pride withers and dies, clawing at your identity and definition of self until the end. And that is painful. That is a painful process and can involve a bit of existential crisis as you try to pick up the pieces of who you say you are. And this leads us straight into the second thing, our masks. Why is Isaiah mentioning the people that he lives among as part of his failings? It's because people try to fit in. I mean, peer pressure is so common. It's almost a natural law with human nature. So we want to to fit in with the people around us and we compose some mask, some composition, some aspect of ourselves to present to others when we are in public. The fear of public speaking is more common than the fear of death because of the fear of being rejected. Because Death can be scary. Being shunned certainly is. We want to fit in. And people build masks out of their life experiences. Masks to put on when we are in certain social settings to help us fit in. So if I'm over here and I take out my resume, and I'm going to stick it right, right there. Right? Because English reading people are going to start at the left, move to the right, start at the top, move down. So pride of place right there. And then I have some other accomplishments like, uh, let's see, oh yes, high school science fair. I won grand prize. I'm going <sighs> to polish up that trophy and set that right there. Yeah, okay. And uh, I've got a few other things to put on this shelf here. And then I'm going to take this. I'm going to lift it and carry it over here because now I'm talking to you people. Hi, you see this? See, I'm accomplished. Be impressed by me. Right? This is, this is who I am. Yeah. Oh. Hi. You have stuff? I have stuff. We have that in common. We can be friends. Right? Yeah? Okay? So, as I built this facade, my social armor, it gets heavier to cart around. And I'm, I'm worried that you'll find a chink in it somewhere. And I have to keep building it bigger so that I'm not just some flat cardboard character. And I want to hide the mess that I am behind this wall that I've built because this is who I will admit to being in public. And I don't want you to know the rest. But then when your pride crumbles, 
what happens to this construct? It crashes down too. This was my social armor. I was so stressed and burdened about carrying it around. Now I'm, I'm freed of that burden. But it's kind of scary. Let me reintroduce myself. Hi, I'm Mike, and I'm a mess. Put another way, you might have heard this before, I'm a complete idiot. But my future is incredibly bright, and anyone can get in on this. When you see the reality of your need, your pride is blasted away, and it puts cracks in your mask as well. Your identity is shaken, so the performance that you put on to hide parts of yourself and emphasize other parts also crumbles. But with that, the fear needs to crumble as well. If you want to be more connected to someone, be more real with them. Be honest. Stop propping up that false image of you and be open and true with one another. James 5.16 Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. You are only as sick as your secrets. Colossians 3.13 Bearing with one another and if one has any complaint or grievance against another, forgiving them just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So you must forgive. In such a manner, you must also act. How much of your junk did God forgive? All. And so you must do for each other. How many of you know the buddy system? You probably used it when you were younger, like going on field trips, buddy system, yes? Yeah, I see a few hands. All right. You pick one buddy and you stick with them for the whole outing, the entire field trip. No one should be alone. Soldiers will do a similar thing. You'll have a battle buddy who helps check your gear and watches your back and makes sure you're safe out there in the conflict. You need a buddy, just one to start. You need someone who knows your darkest crevices and is still your friend who will hold you accountable if you are slipping back into those. One is needed. Two is good. And I would have serious trouble holding this level of commitment with more than three people. But find one person you trust, or one person that you are willing to start trusting to this degree, and be completely open with them. Break your mask and show the real you because this is what safety looks like. Our leadership has talked about a place where anyone can grow, and that takes the gospel plus safety plus time. This is what safety looks like, knowing that you can be a mess and they'll still let you in the building. Knowing that, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Jesus, Romans 8. And seeing it acted out in this place. If someone is pouring out their heart, lancing their spiritual wounds and getting the gunk and the pus and the gross stuff out so that the healing can begin, 
Let he who among you is without sin be the first to cast a stone. I know I can't. In fact, 1 John 1.10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Because God has said, all have sinned and fall short. So if someone is finally letting out those wounds and getting the healing that they need, we're not going to accuse them. This is a safe place where we are all on equal footing. And because these are lessons that God is teaching me, he makes them personal. I'm finding that the less mask that I have, the less scared I am. If I present something as part of my identity, then that something is a risk to me. If I present myself as a software engineer and then I lose my job, what am I? If I present myself as an artist and then I get carpal tunnel and can no longer hold a paintbrush, what am I? If I present myself as a child of God, nothing can touch that. And so I have nothing to fear. As your pride crumbles away, these points that you have made your identity out of also crumble until only God remains. Point two and a half. Our God takes personal action. I keep standing way off to the side of the podium. Our God takes personal action. I want to point this out. This is probably worth a whole sermon in and of itself. But God does something very specific here. Isaiah says his failing is unclean lips. And the angel takes a coal from the altar where atonement is made and touches it to his lips to cleanse him. God fixes the specific issue that Isaiah brings up. Doubting Thomas says, I can't believe until I stick my finger in the nail hole. Jesus shows up and says, here, Thomas, stick your finger in. Our God is a personal God willing to take personal action to bolster the faith in each of us. He wants a personal relationship with you. And he is willing to make it personal to get that. He wants your identity to be in him. And he is willing to carve away anything that you are holding between him and your heart. So be careful what you cling to. Point three, our plan breaks. All through life, people are asking you what your plan is. You know, what do you want to be when you grow up? Where are you going to go to school? What are you going to major in? What's your five-year plan? Your next career move? Do you want fries with that? (laughs) Making plans is not a bad thing. It is a part of life. But as they say, if you want to hear God laugh, tell him your plans, right? We keep making plans, though, because we can't move forward if we do not know which way we are going. And anything is better than sitting still, right? So, wisdom for that path, Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Another translation, another translation I have read of that is, dedicate your plans to him. Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Not, here I am, and here's my five-year evangelism plan for the valley. 
It's, here I am, and I will do whatever you put before me. And as God has pointed out to me, it's not, here I am, ready for my act of service to be back in the sound booth where my embarrassing difficulty with names doesn't matter because they're all on little stickers right in front of me. He answered, okay, we can start with that. And now I'm up here, which was not in my plan. But Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When I was in college, I heard a sermon titled, or a sermon about Jonah, titled, God Wants to Ruin Your Life. The main idea was that we can make whatever plans we want, but expect them to be completely derailed when we brush against God's plan. Jonah received word that he should go to Nineveh and let those wicked people know that it was time to repent. He did not want Nineveh to be saved. He didn't like them. So he booked passage on a ship heading the opposite direction. And God retrieved him by means of a storm and a large fish and deposited him back on the shore so he could get back to his prescribed assignment. Yes. Now, Jonah had a good thing going. He was recognized as a prophet of God in his community. He had respect. He had the big house and all of that. And he wanted that and not following God. His plan did not involve God's plan. And so he got wrecked. I'm not saying sit and passively wait for divine instruction on how to tie your shoes. For our limited selves to do life, we have to make plans and try to follow them. I'm saying leave vagaries in your plan so that God can adjust it as you need. Expect things to change. James 4, verses 13 through 16. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such place, a city, and spend a year there, do business, and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be, for you are like vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Here it comes full circle. Boast in your arrogance. To presume that your plan will instruct God's action is arrogance, hubris, dangerously prideful. We do not have God's perspective. There is a way that seems right to a person because of the limited scope of their perception, but it leads to death. It does not go where they thought it would. Proverbs 14:12. There is a way that seems right to a person but its end is the way to death. So three things we have seen that break when we are saved. Pride, mask, and plan. Let's go back to Isaiah 6 again and look specifically at the sequence of actions again. I saw God. God is praised always. I broke. God provided a solution. I'll move where he tells me. This is the full dip and climb, the full process.
the path of realizing that you can't, and then God steps in and says, I can, and then you say please and thank you, and follow for the next couple of steps. He wants to tell you that you are loved immensely. You are specifically crafted for his glorious purpose. So let go of your pride. Let go of the fake walls that you hold between yourself and others. Loosen your grip on your plans so that you can say, if the Lord wills, instead of, I certainly will. This is a scary change. People want control. And admitting that you are not the one steering the world is admitting that you do not have the control that you want. And that's okay. Trust that God holds your future right where he knows you need to be. I particularly liked this passage, Jeremiah 31, verses 17 through 22. There is hope for your future, says the Lord. Your children will come again to their own land. I have heard Israel saying, you disciplined me severely like a calf that needs training for the yoke. Turn me again to you and restore me, for you alone are the Lord my God. I turned away from God, but then I was sorry. I kicked myself for my stupidity. I was thoroughly ashamed of all I did in my younger days. Is not Israel still my darling child, says the Lord? I often have to punish him, but I still love him. That's why I long for him and surely will have mercy on him. So set up road signs. Put up guideposts. Mark well the path by which you came. And come back again, my virgin Israel. Return to your towns here. How long will you wander, my wayward daughter? For the Lord will cause something new to happen. Israel will embrace God. Dane Ortland wrote an excellent book titled Gentle and Lowly. It goes through the Bible and pulls out points where God specifically says, this is my heart's posture. This is why I do things. And the book shows that mercy is foremost in God's works and motivations. Here's a quote. Christ does not get flustered and frustrated when we come to him for fresh forgiveness, for renewed pardon with distress and need and emptiness. That's the whole point. That's what he came to heal. Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. Broken and crushed. We break and the cracks drain us out. And then we come to God with emptiness and need, and he provides for that need. A lot of wants may go unsatisfied, but he provides what you need. Amen. Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those who record, whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt whose lives are lived in complete honesty. If we are honest, we are sinners. 
we are wrong and need to acknowledge that before we can be helped. We have to break our pride and our masks and those little lies that we have built our shining self-image on. I must and you must throw that golden idol of self out of our hearts. And then we can hand our broken pieces to God and see the artwork that he creates when he glues us back together. Each one of us a masterwork. Worship team, will you come back up? In 2 Corinthians 7, verses 9 and 10, it says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For you were grieved as God willed, so that you didn't experience any loss from us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. Brokenness, as I've used the word here, is that godly grief. That conviction from the Spirit letting you know that you are wrong and that God is waiting for you to accept His solution to the problem. And whatever state your life is in, whatever mess you have, you can come to Him. You can bring it to Him. No preparation needed. Just come as you are.